Welcome back to the Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Avi Cooper, and I'm joined by my friends and co-hosts, Tony Brew and Hannah Abrams. How are you both doing? Amazing. I'm doing great. Ready for this episode. Yeah, let's dive right in. So for today's episode, we're going to talk about one of the most commonly used diuretics, not furosemide, not hydrochlorothiazide, alcohol. So we'll answer the question, why does alcohol make one urinate so much? Tony, how far back are we going for this one? Actually, not as far as we've gone for some other episodes. Um, but I do want to demonstrate that the this effect of alcohol on urination has been observed for centuries. And I'll offer an exchange from Macbeth to sort of show that. So Porter says to Macbeth, and drink, sir, is a provoker of three things. And Macbeth then asks, what three things does drink especially provoke? And then Reporter then tells Macbeth, Mary, sir, nose painting, sleep, and urine. It, you know, at least in Shakespeare's time, they were aware of the diuretic effect of alcohol. And, you know, this was in the 1500s, 1600s. So, you know, it doesn't go back as far as some other things, but it goes back, I would say, fairly far. So I won't ask for any details, but, um, you know, I suspect you guys have at least a little bit of personal experience with this. Am I wrong? You're not wrong. You're not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Okay. So I love this topic. I'm really glad that we're talking about it. I think the first question that comes to mind is, aren't people just urinating because they're drinking more fluid? If someone goes to a bar and has a beer, of course they're going to urinate more because they're just drinking steadily over a period of time, right? Yeah. And I, I think this question is the perfect place to start. Um, and actually, what we need is a study that looks at the effects of alcohol and then like a, you know, a pretty benign comparator like water and see how they affect urine output. And if an equal volume of those two liquids leads to an equal amount of urine output, then kind of the episode's over, you know, it's just a, a volume effect. And fortunately, this exact study was done by Margaret Murray um, way back in 1932. And so what Murray did was she administered 300 milliliters of alcohol or 300 milliliters of water to just two subjects. And she showed that alcohol le leads to a lot more urine output than the water alone. And so this suggested that there was something about the alcohol other than just the volume of intake uh, that was causing a diuresis. Now, at the time, they didn't yet know the mechanism. And so I'm, I'm curious if you guys have any thoughts on how you might approach like the next step on figuring out what the mechanism might be. So I guess one approach would be to kind of reframe this a little bit and say that alcohol can lead to polyuria. And I guess when I think about polyuria, the two main types of things that can induce that I think are either diuresis from solute or diuresis from water. And so I guess for alcohol, do we know which one of those it is? Yeah, I think we we do. And and I agree that's probably a good start is to think is there some solute that alcohol promotes that leads to the diuresis or is it just water that's coming out? And you know, again thinking back to like personal experience, I mean, at least my personal experience suggests that it's water that's coming out, but I'm basing that just on the fact that, you know, alcohol mediated diuresis ends up being a pretty clear urine. But it'd probably be a little bit more precise to look at alcohol's effect on urine osmolarity because that, I think, will give us a better answer. And that's actually exactly what Kathleen Roberts did. And her results from her experiments were published in 1963. And what she demonstrated was that the urine osmolarity plummets from nearly 900 to less than 100 uh, after ingestion of just 6 to 8 ounces of 100-proof alcohol. 
Okay. Yeah. It, so that's not a huge volume, right? Six to eight ounces, but just the, the, and its effect on the osmolarity just profound. So clear as day, alcohol is producing a water <laughs> diuresis. So in my mind, that means that antidiuretic hormone is potentially at play. Yeah, I mean, it could be, again, thinking back to the original question you asked, Hannah, it could be like a, a, a volume thing, right? If if people in that experiment were just drinking a huge amount of volume, then maybe the, the osmolarity would plummet. But again, it was only six to eight ounces. That's not going to cause a, a dramatic drop in the, the osmolarity. So it does instead seem like there's some uh, effect on ADH. And the Robert study showed this water diuresis, and it, again, it showed that it occurred with really small amounts of, of fluid, six to eight ounces. Um, so it wasn't the excess intake. It was instead some effect on ADH. And so then the question becomes, like, what kind of effect? Is this like, if this is a form of diabetes insipidus, is it, you know, a central diabetes insipidus, nephrogenic, like that kind of thing? I love that alcohol appears to cause multiple types of insipidness. Um, so... <laughs> How would you say, would we describe this as a central diabetes insipidus, a nephrogenic diabetes insipidus? Has anyone tried to figure this out? Yeah, actually, Margaret Murray, way back in the 1930s when she was doing her experiments, she offered a clue. And what she did is in addition to having her just two subjects, again, this is like a really small study, in addition to having them drink alcohol and water, she also performed experiments where she administered pituitrin alongside the water and the alcohol. And pituitrin, which I hadn't heard of before, is an extract of bovine posterior pituitary hormone. So it basically contains oxytocin and more importantly, ADH. And so when she gave this essentially ADH alongside the alcohol, the diuretic effect was antagonized. So if you give back ADH, it sounds like, like she did, then alcohol doesn't cause a diuresis. So, That's right. Okay. So this suggests that alcohol is having an effect on ADH release because maybe we're then replacing it and that it wasn't being made beforehand as a result of the alcohol. Is that fair to say? I think it's exactly right. Okay. You're in for a surprise, but that sounds like central diabetes insipidus. That's right. Yeah, exactly. That, that was a bad pun. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're in. Ayo. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Yeah. Okay. All right. So it's a form of central diabetes insipidus, but this was just two subjects, right? So like, do we have any more robust data since then? Yeah. I mean, it's like two subjects 90 years ago. Um, like, yeah, let's, let's see a little bit more data. <laughs> yeah. So Murray's results were replicated and these were and not by others, not by her and published in, in the 1950s. Um, and in that experiment, again, a form of pituitary extract was administered. And again, this blocked the diuretic effect of alcohol. And so this again supported the idea that the mechanism of action was a decrease in the release of ADH as opposed to some effect in the kidney. So again, as, as you said, Avi, more a you know transient form of diabetes insipidus as opposed to something happening in the kidney, you know, like nephrogenic diabetes insipidus. There was another experiment which I thought was really crazy. Uh, this one was also published in the 50s, where they injected the alcohol directly into the carotid artery. What? And they're like, well, if we, yeah, if we, the, the idea was like, if we, if we inject it directly into the carotid artery, it's probably going to go to the hypothalamus uh, and the, uh, the pituitary. 
okay. Um, so they did that and they maybe unsurprisingly found uh, a brisk diuresis. They did that to um, people? <laughs> yeah, apparently they did that to people, yes. I, yeah, I don't think these were animal studies. And there have been more recent studies showing that ADH levels rapidly decrease after someone drinks alcohol. And so I think the general consensus on this is that alcohol inhibits ADH release. And you know, I think it's probably reasonable just to be like really clear about this, right? ADH promotes water absorption. So when that's lacking and it's not present in the kidney, there's going to be a profound inability to reabsorb water and therefore a, a water diuresis. And as we've said a few times, this is basically a form of transient central DI. Tony, did you see anything about mechanism of how alcohol is doing this? You know, I, I really didn't. I'm sure there's something that's out there, but I didn't come across anything. I wish that I had. Um, I'm not sure if you guys have seen anything uh, on this. I, I couldn't find anything clear. They basically stop at the idea that it affects that it happens. They're like, okay, we're done. We've we've gotten to the end we've of the road. Solved it. Yeah. This like um, robust research so, you know, funding in the 1950s seems to have exactly. run out for this topic. This has to be this. Exactly. Like, you've only cited female researchers so far. This is an incredible, uh, incredible field here. And most of the um, subjects were men. I just thought that injecting alcohol into the carotid might kind of just put a halt to the whole research agenda. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you might there, you might possibly think. the IRB. But yeah, but amazingly, it didn't. It didn't. But and it, but what's cool is that um, there are scenarios where this effect has been taken advantage of by clinicians. And so I'm like, I'm wondering if you guys could imagine a scenario where you might say, you know what, we need to get rid of some ADH. Maybe let's give this person some alcohol. Tony, are you suggesting that we use alcohol to treat SIADH in the hospital? <laughs> no, I'm definitely not suggesting that, but I I am saying that it's been done. So there's a case report I found from 1981 where there was a patient who had SIADH from tuberculous meningitis, and this patient was treated with alcohol, and the SIADH improved, sort of like proof of concept. But the problem is that the, the effect was very short-lived, and that's because the effects of alcohol are really short-lived, so they had to keep dosing the patient. And that would lead to things like intoxication and all the other bad side effects of alcohol. So it's not really, I would say, a suggested treatment for SIADH in 2021. But you said that you know Shakespeare knew about the diuretic effects of alcohol. So heart failure as a condition or dropsy, I guess, as it used to be called, has been known to be a problem, obviously, for for centuries. So and and longer. So like. Has anybody ever tried to use alcohol for heart failure, for dropsy before we had, you know, more effective diuretics like furosemide? Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense to at least consider this because ADH levels are often increased in heart failure. I mean, they, they didn't know that in the 15, 1600s, but it's true. But I can only find one report where alcohol was used to treat heart failure as a diuretic. And, you know, this was in 1956 just years before the release of the first thiazide and loop diuretics. But that was it. I couldn't find anything else. And, and initially, I was a little bit surprised by that. But I think as I thought a little bit more, I shouldn't be surprised because you know we've known that alcohol is cardiotoxic since at least the 1800s. So I'm not surprised that you know doctors treating dropsy in the you know 18, 19, early 1900s sort of shied away from alcohol as a therapy. And I'm glad they did. So we definitely do not give medical advice on the podcast and in general would not want to encourage excess alcohol use. But is there a way to block the diuretic effect of alcohol? Like, has that been tested? 
Yes, it, it certainly has. And I think the way to think about this is you really just need to turn on the mediators of ADH release to sort of blunt this effect. So as a reminder, you can either have an increase in serum osmolarity or B volume depleted. Those are the two main drivers of ADH release. So if you have either of those or both, um, the alcohol mediated diuresis is blunted. And, and so I'll offer um, you know one example. In sort of this study, they gave participants the really delicious mixture of 200 milliequivalents of sodium chloride uh, sprinkled onto celery. Uh, and they had, I don't know why they just didn't give them pretzels, but they gave them this just prior to ingesting whiskey. That was the alcohol in this study. Um, and ingesting the sodium blunted the alcohol diuresis. The idea being that it somehow increased the serum osmolarity, promoting brain release of ADH. And there are actually similar findings um, when you make people volume depleted before they drink alcohol. That also blunts the alcohol-mediated diuresis. But none of us are suggesting that people go out and become volume depleted before they go out on a Friday night. Well, what came to mind for me, Tony, was just giving the ADH exogenously to kind of just drive the level up and before the alcohol. So I desmopressin, you know, I guess it's, it's, it's exogenous ADH, right? So I just, that's what came to mind for me as a way to, uh, if you had access to it, but not recommended. Yeah. I mean, we, yeah, next time you go out to the bar, just inject that right into the carotid and see what happens. Well, it's used for bedwetting and kids, right? That's true. Oh, that, yeah, that, that's true, actually. Um, yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. That That's absolutely right. In 2025, when we all go out to bars again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right. So before we finish, though, I do feel like we should address this concept of breaking the seal that is associated with what occurs, the diuresis that occurs after drinking alcohol. So what's going on there, Tony? Yeah. I mean, this often heard warning, you, you'll, you'll hear this like, oh, no, once you start urinating, you won't be able to stop, right? Uh, that's the idea of like breaking the seal. You know, I'm not certain about this, but I think um, the perception of this as a phenomenon may relate to the delay in diuresis you see with alcohol. So, you know, remember that the half-life of ADH is about 15 to 20 minutes. Um, so the time to a maximum diuresis might be expected to occur around like 90 to 120 minutes after someone starts drinking. You know, then all the, the ADH uh, is out of the system. And the idea is like once you start urinating, I mean, you've got central DI. You're not going to stop until the ADH is reconstituted. So I think this this idea that like, oh, there's some delay after I start drinking and then I can't stop. We call that breaking the seal, but there's no seal. It's just the ADH is gone for a short period of time. Beautiful. I think my takeaway point from this episode is that not all the glitters is gold. <laughs> Tony, do you have take-home points for us? I sure do. So um, uh, number one, alcohol very quickly inhibits ADH release, and that causes a form of transient central diabetes insipidus. So this results in a delayed but pretty brisk water diuresis, and things that elevate serum osmolarity and or cause volume depletion can sort of blunt this phenomenon. So fascinating. Incredible. All right. That wraps up another episode of The Curious Clinicians. Thanks, as always, for joining us. As a reminder, you can join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. We are excited to partner with VCU Health to offer CME and MOC credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals just for listening to this episode. 
For more information, visit ce.bcuhealth.org slash curious clinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is definitely for educational and entertainment purposes only and definitively does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we have been the Curious Clinicians. Thanks for listening.